Welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. This episode, we are talking about Robert E. Howard's story, Casanero's Last Song. This was published posthumously in the first issue of the magazine Etchings and Odysseys in 1973, though it, it must have been written at some point in the 1920s, because Howard was a contemporary of H.P. Lovecraft's. Uh, he was really a member of the Weird Tales Big Three, along with Lovecraft, and also Clark Ashton Smith, who we covered a few episodes ago. Howard of course, most famous for having invented the character Conan the Barbarian. Uh, This is not a Conan story, but I'm sure that we will cover one someday if our uh, patrons choose to elect one. This is just a weird tale, and it it feels like an early weird fiction story. A lot of the elements of weird fiction are there, but there's also a lot of blanks, and I don't know if... uh I don't know if the tropes at this time were developed enough to justify the number of kind of blank spaces in this story, though there might have been a word count limit that Howard had to reach in order to submit this for editing. But basically, it's a story about a haunted record. We've done this story already once on the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast with Gene Wolfe's story, The Recording. Yeah, I completely had that on my mind while I was reading this story and then realized that actually this only saw publication after that Gene Wolfe story. I, in, in fact, in some way thought that Wolfe had, was riffing on this piece in the recording, and that that was something we had missed when we covered that story over on the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast, but that turns out not to be true. But there is a real interesting Gene Wolfe connection to the publishing of this story, which is to say that this issue of Etchings and Odysseys from 1973 contains a short story by Robert Borsky, who, uh, in addition to being a science fiction writer, uh, is one of the great Gene Wolfe scholars out there. So I found that uh, fairly amusing. Oh, that's really cool. I did not know that. But we'll definitely have to take a look at that story sometime in the future. But for now, we have to cover Casanetto's last song. So Glenn, why don't we go through what happens in this story? Well, this story has an absolutely masterful opening. And so I just want to read it. Howard starts this story writing, I eyed the package curiously. It was thin and flat. And the address written clearly in the curving, elegant hand I had learned to hate. The hand I knew to now be cold in death. Uh, this opening is just a, just a fantastic teaser. Uh, it forces us to be curious about what this object is, this package, who sent it, uh, why he hated the recipient, and how he died. There's just so much information that's packed into these two sentences that we want answers to immediately. I mean, this is just like great television writing. It's one of those sentences that you can take and put somewhere else and write a whole other story after. It immediately, as you said, teases the imagination into wondering about what is in the package and what kind of story this is. Yeah, you're right. It's an awesome writing prompt. We should we should ask listeners to, in fact, take that challenge up. Take these opening lines, write your own story, send it to us. We'd love to read it. Well, after this teaser, we're introduced to our characters. The, the recipient of this mysterious package is a man named Gordon, and he has with him his friend Costigan. We don't get any more information about the identity of Costigan here, but Howard wrote a, a robust series of boxing stories about a character uh, named Sailor Steve Costigan, and uh, I suppose this might be him. In fact, I'm, I'm certain that it is, but this is not listed as one of the canonical Sailor Steve stories. Uh, those stories are, are really fun. They're they're really kind of a grown-up version of what is, I think, one of your favorite genres of story, Brandon, that is to say that the boys' adventure story. So I'll look forward to covering an, an authentic Sailor Steve story at some point as well. 
Well, in this story, Costigan advises Gordon to be careful with this package. Uh, It's too thin to be a bomb, but the black devil who sent it certainly wouldn't be sending anything to Gordon except as a means of revenge from beyond the grave. When Gordon opens the package, they find a record. It turns out that the the person who has sent this package, the person who is now dead, is Giovanni Cassanetto, whom Howard describes here as that great and evil genius whose operatic singing had thrilled the world and whose dark and mysterious crimes had shocked that same world. Howard's going to do a lot in this story to give us these contrasts every time we run into a reference to Cassinetto. Here, it's he has this beautiful voice that wowed the world, but his exposed crimes shocked the world. We have descriptions of his golden voice, but it's also evil and hated. That's like the main technique in this story, is to put these two contrasts of beauty and evil right next to each other. And we're going to see that over and over again. What matters here for the plot is that we also now learn that Cassanetto was executed for these mysterious crimes. And it was Gordon's testimony that led to his conviction. Because you see, Gordon had accidentally come upon the cavern where Cassanetto practiced ancient abominations and offered up human sacrifices to the devil he worshipped. Uh, I'm a little curious about how he how one accidentally comes upon a uh, devil-worshipping cavern. But that's going to be one of the big questions of our discussion. <laughs> I think it's the big question of this story. <laughs> well, this record has no label on it, but Gordon and Costigan know that it must be special because Cassanetto had ordered all of his operatic recordings to be destroyed destroyed before he died. But there is a note. Uh, written in Cassinetto's hand, the note says, To my friend Stephen Gordon, to be listened to alone in his study. Uh, this does not sound like a good thing, and Costigan says as much. He tells Gordon to throw it away. Uh, obviously, Cassinetto is trying to perform black magic on him. But if Gordon does insist on listening to it, Costigan is not going to let him do it alone. Uh, And that's real friendship right there. And I hope you know, Brandon, that I would do the same for you if you ever encounter a devil-worshipping opera singer. I'm there for you. Thanks, Len. That really means a lot to me. Though I hope we never find ourselves in this kind of idiot plot (laughs) in our our lifetime. Well, this is about the only type of weird fiction plot we're ever going to find ourselves in. (laughs) Right. I think that's true. (laughs) So, of course, they play the record, and it's Cassinetto's voice addressing Gordon. And, And here's what he says. I really love a lot of the, the writing in this story, so I'm just going to read some of it. This song I shall imprison in the disc which now rests upon my recording machine. And before the police arrive, I shall send it to you by one who will not fail me. You will receive it through the mails the day after I am hanged. My friend, this is a suitable setting for the last song of the High Priest of Satan. I am standing in the Black Chapel where you first surprised me when you came blundering into my secret cavern and my clumsy neophytes let you escape. Before me stands the shrine of the unnameable, and before it the red-stained altar where many a virgin soul has gone winging up to the dark stars. On all sides hover dark, mysterious things, and I hear the swish of mighty wings in the gloom. This is a, a pretty good example of the sort of description that Howard is, is really famous for, uh, even if it's a little clumsy to actually put that type of description in the mouth of a character, I think. Uh, but it's absolutely beautiful. I agree. The hallmarks of weird fiction writing are all over this story, and it's so much fun to read them and kind of see how they're developing or how Howard is really developing them in the in the 1920s. At this point, when 
Stephen Gordon can assume that he's going to be cursed. They do decide to continue to listen on the record before uh, anything further happens, which I think is pretty funny. Also, the fact that Casanetto is a high priest of Satan and then standing before the shrine of the unnameable is kind of a funny contrast to me. I'm not sure who the unnameable is referring to if we've already named Satan, but we have to imagine it's something much worse. The imagery around this dark altar and the dark stars and the swishing of mighty wings. I mean, he's hitting a lot of sensory things here that is just so much fun. This is a really fun story. Yeah, we get color, we get we get touch, and we also get the the sound uh, in this cave. And of course, sound is really the, the, big, the big sense, actually, of this story. Because, of course, this speech is not all that's on the record. Casanetto promised a song, and we're going to get one. His golden voice surges up into a rhythmic chant. It's haunting, weird, and indescribable. And Costigan recognizes it as the invocation from the Black Mass. And Gordon falls under its sway. He starts to see inhuman faces around him, and he even senses the touch of bat-like wings on his face. And, and Gordon now starts to see again the, the chapel where Castaneto killed people on his altar as a sacrifice to the unnameable horned and winged thing he and his followers worshipped. The song becomes so powerful that it seems to blot out the stars. And Gordon, you know, still in his study here, Gordon staggers as if something has pushed him. And Howard writes that all the consecrated essence of purgatory flowed out at him on the wings of Casanetto's wonderful and terrible voice. And, and now Gordon begins to imagine that he is the one who is going to be sacrificed on this altar. And the sights and the sounds and the smells are, are so real that he feels as if he is really there. And then he realizes that in some sense, he is really there. And if he can't get away from this song, if he can't break this spell, he will truly die from this vision. So there's real stakes here. But he's totally powerless against it. He, he knows he has to break the spell, but he can't do anything. He can't move. But just in time, Costigan smashes the record player with his sledgehammer fist and saves his friend. The song is over, the spell is over, and everything is fine. And that's how our story ends. Yes, this is a really short story. I love the imagery of the sledgehammer fist crashing down on the record player, powerful enough to break not just the record, but the whole record player. All of this imagery of hell and, and the sense of being trapped on the altar with a dagger coming down and being sacrificed is really, really strong. The thing that's honestly missing for me in the story is any sense of character motivation or why the characters are doing what they're doing. Um, but that is something we're going to take up in our discussion. Well, I mentioned real briefly in the recap this phrase, idiot plot, which comes, I think, from Roger Ebert's uh, film criticism, which is a phrase used to describe any plot where if the characters weren't idiots, none of the story would have taken place in the first place. And this story to me is like, feels like a hallmark example of that idiot plot. They have two moments Costigan and Stephen Gordon, where they can just stop listening to this record before they get pulled into the black mass, and neither one of them does it. So I guess, Glenn, a, qu a question I want to ask you before we kind of have some fun filling in the blanks of the story, coming up with our own character motivations and what's happening, and maybe even trying to imagine a third act, is does that stop you? Does the presence of this idiot plot stop you from enjoying the story? Or is it part of the enjoyment of the story for you? 
It certainly does not stop me from enjoying the story, and it probably is part of the enjoyment. I mean, so many horror stories and also weird fiction stories, really any of these fantasy stories, hinge on people making dumb decisions or totally irrational choices. I mean, look, there is no reason why Frodo Baggins should have been the one carrying the ring to Mount Doom, or and, and certainly he should never have volunteered for that. But yet the story only works because he did so. We've all shouted, don't go in there at a TV screen or a movie screen, you know, annually, every October. We all do this almost in unison. It's a feature of these stories. And of course, in my own life, uh, as someone who enjoys mountaineering, I have made a lot of idiot decisions. And the only good stories I have about my hikes and backpacking trips are the ones that result from knowing I should have turned around at that moment, but I didn't. So I think it's a it's really a feature, not a flaw of the of the genre and storytelling in general, I think. Yeah, I agree. This story is clearly the type of story that Costigan and Steve Gordon are going to go to a bar in a couple months and be like, remember when we got the record from the murderer? Boy, that was a crazy night. (laughs) And tell the story to each other, I think, time and time again. Yeah, and we don't even know what time of day this is, actually. This may might have just had breakfast. Like, this is just the start of their day. Who knows what their evening plans are, you know? (laughs) Right, exactly. Well, let's do some work here. I just really want to have fun in this discussion with this story. And, And the work I'm talking about doing is trying to come up with our own character motivations, really, and fill in some of the blanks that are really present in the story. So the first question I want to ask you is, why does Casanetto worship Satan? What is he gaining from this? Does it have anything to do with his voice in your mind? Or how are you making these connections between the golden voice of Casanetto and the darkness of his acts? I do think it's implicit in the text that his golden voice, that he, the, the fact that he is the best singer of all time, is a result of his worshiping Satan. And I, you pointed out how Howard is doing these great juxtapositions of something terrible and something wonderful throughout the story. And his voice is one of those things. And I think that that juxtaposition is meant to indicate to us that it, that his voice is of supernatural origin through this bargain that he's made with the unnameable or with Satan or with both of them, or if they're, or maybe they're the same person. It's unclear. Right. Yeah, it is unclear, but that's all right. Yeah, I agree with you. I think I think it's absolutely the case that Castanetto has entered into some kind of devil's bargain and has maybe enjoyed the murder more than the singing by the time he's found out. Yeah, I think that absolutely is true. I mean, the alternative explanation here is that he actually is just the high priest of Satan, but that that isn't a paying gig. And so to like pay his rent and stuff, he has to be an opera singer. I find that unbelievable because there's like easier jobs to do to pay the rent. <laughs> right. Yes, there are easier jobs than being an opera singer. <laughs> Next question I have for you is, what do you think Stephen Gordon's actual relationship to Casanetto is? The note from Casanetto in the story reads, to my friend Stephen Gordon. But then there's also this indication that Stephen just stumbles across the abominable rituals and human sacrifices taking place in a cavern. I want you to go crazy here. What's their real relationship? I want to imagine the actual logistics of Casanetto's double life as high priest of Satan and world famous opera singer. That sounds tough to pull off. One of the things that's going to be tough to pull off here, though, of course, is simply that we know that he there is he is in some place that has caverns that are hidden enough that are out of the way enough to not be noticed but also has to be near some place that has an opera 
Uh, now, given this is the probably the 1930s that this story's been written, and more places have operas than they do today, but still, I'm a little confused about where on the globe that this actually could even be taking place. Uh, my guess is going to be this is supposed to be Southern California or something like that, or maybe these are just kind of the foothills outside of L.A. So Stephen Gordon could actually just be some guy who was out taking a walk with his dog and stumbled upon this Satan cult in a in a cavern. Uh, but I think that the use of of the word friend here in that note to my friend is in fact meant to suggest or even really indicate that they ha- actually have some relationship with each other. Uh, they don't seem to actually be real genuine friends. So my guess is that maybe Stephen Gordon is like his manager or something like that. Uh, someone who works for a record label or works at an opera house is in some way in, involved in the, the music business. Yeah, I think they definitely have some sort of relationship that Stephen gets suspicious somehow of Casanetto's nocturnal activities after leaving the opera with a number of women who are going missing. I mean, this is a great detective plot uh, and follows him into the foothills and, you know, sneaks behind a stalactite or something and uh, or stalagmite. Maybe it's a really long pillar. Who can know? (laughs) (laughs) And uh, and witnesses this ritual and tries to save the woman and. The real question for me is how Casanetto gets arrested at all, why he wouldn't flee into hiding. How do the police get to the cavern quickly and arrest arrest Casanetto? There's some logistical problems around this, but it's very strange to me. The most jarring piece of the logistics around the story is the mundane solution to this supernatural problem. And that's just not something we see that much in weird fiction or literature in general. Right. There's a whole story in this story that just isn't told. There's a whole this whole adventure story here about how do you escape a satanic cult if you've encountered them accidentally in a cave in the wilderness, or even if you've done it purposefully. Where are you going? How do you go to the cops? How do you prove any of the claims that you're making? How is it possible that Gordon's eyewitness testimony leads to the hanging of this person. I mean, I think if I was on that jury, or at least if I was even the judge making doing the sentencing, I would want maybe a little more evidence before I send a man to be hanged. But there's a whole story there that we just don't get because that's not what Howard wants to tell. Howard wants to tell us a story about uh, a haunted record. Howard is interested in this, which still at this point in the the late 1920s, maybe early 1930s, is new technology or and the idea that this device, a record, could be haunted or used to cast a spell, uh, is going to be a, is a real novelty here, right? Of course, we see this all the time in in literature, really forever, with with books being haunted in this way. But this is the new technology, and and this really, in fact, is the precursor to the Buffy the Vampire Slayer episode, I Robot You Jane, which posits the same thing, except that it's about uh, about the internet, or uh, it's really also The Ring, which of course posits this sort of thing about you know, a VHS tape, right? And phone lines. Uh, so this is really kind of wondering, can our technology be haunted? That's the story Howard wants to tell, but he's left on the table, this whole other exciting adventure story that has to be the backstory to this. So that's super interesting. So there's even a whole nother writing prompt there. That, that's two writing prompts just embedded in this story for some other weird fiction writer. Maybe it's you, maybe it's a listener to, to take up as a challenge. The next question I'm going to ask, it's really, it's really about maybe how we fix the, the idiot pro- plot, the idiot plot pr- 
problem of the story, which you and I both agree is not really a problem, but I think the story would be stronger if the characters were more reasonably motivated to listen to this record. But I just want to ask you, Glenn, first, why do you think it is that Stephen Gordon listens to the record, even after Costigan advises him against it? And his only response is, I don't know, I think I'm still going to listen to it. But then also, why does Costigan insist on staying behind and listening to the record with Stephen? Well, look, Costigan's just a good friend. Also, he's Sailor Steve. I mean, he's boxed his way around the globe. He's broken up murder cults and Satan cults all over the world. He can do anything. But I think here's really why this is not a problem for me, this this idiot plot, is because I'm envisioning myself getting a recording or even just a book, a letter, a, a flash drive from someone who has just been executed because of my testimony. I know that I should take that thing to the police. But I can already feel my hypothetical self in this hypothetical situation not turning it over to the police until I've had a look at it myself because I'm curious. I want to know. So I think I really empathize with this move here. I'm going to start carrying around holy water, Glenn. I think I'm now terrified of you becoming possessed by some (laughs) demon from a flash drive. I like that you think future tense is the appropriate tense there. Uh, We might need to talk later. (laughs) We've got time. Um, yeah, for me, I think what would I was thinking like what would really tighten up this plot? What would maybe fix this story and let it be the same story? Is all the records are destroyed, but one and S- Stephen finds it and brings it home and is unsuspecting that it would be uh, a haunted record, but it could still be to him. He could have found it in some kind of record store or come across it some other way, and maybe you're talking years after the execution where he's thinking about what he did and wondering whether all of it was real or, you know, here he's still so caught up in all of the emotion and reality of the execution, which just took place the day before. I would have loved some distance and then him coming across this record and being forced to listen to like the last words of Casanetto. I don't even need Stephen Gordon to be the character who listens to the record in this story. And in fact, in some ways, I think the tale might work better if he's not. If uh, if this is actually a story of the of Gordon having turned this record over to the police and they're the ones listening to it, or maybe even better, it's Gordon's uh, grandchild or great grandchild who is listen listening to this record and you know inherits this record and then plays it and has this vision experience and maybe doesn't die uh, the way that Gordon is going to here, but but takes this as an inciting incident to go investigate this thing that happened, uh, you know, in her grandfather's past and is uncovering this whole thing. I guess this is kind of the exact plot of The Call of Cthulhu, except that it's now, it's a it's a record or something like that. I mean, there are a lot of things you could do with this device that would flesh out this story a, a lot more and, and, and maybe seem a little less silly. Uh, certainly a little less silly than two guys listening to a record in their study and one guy finally breaking it with his fist. Right. So I, I just have to ask then, why do you think it is, once it's obvious that this record is going to try to do some black magic on them, because we get a long preamble from Casanetto on record saying, I'm going to curse you, and I promised you that I would, and now I'm going to, why do they continue to listen to the record and wait to listen to the black mass? You're just being polite at this point, I think, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, let, let the person finish. Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. You you, re- you really shouldn't. Uh, you know, That's really the point in which you definitely should stop listening and you should, should take the record to the police, though. I, I guess they've already hanged him, so there's perhaps not much else to do. Though, 
there does seem to be more work for the police to do because these other cultists have gotten away. That's how the record has gotten delivered to Gordon in the first place. So again, there's still more plot to be resolved here also. Right. That'll be the last question we kind of talk about. I have one more question, though, before we get to it, which is about the presence of Costigan in this story at all. So it's really two questions. Do you think that Stephen Gordon would have been able to escape this black mass experience if he were by himself? Or is it necessary that Costigan be there to break him out of it? Is this? Do you think this story, in other words, in other words, would be strengthened by having this be a solitary experience of a, of, a, of a lonely man who maybe that would add to his character motivation to listen to the voice of his dead friend, perhaps, or something like that, uh, who he had to turn in. Do you think the presence of Costigan adds or takes away from the tension of the story? And do you think Costigan was affected by listening to the record, or it was really just a charm meant for Stephen Gordon. Oh, that's a great question. It hadn't occurred to me to think about Costigan's experience of the song, but obviously he's there hearing it too. And obviously he is not powerless to move. So it does maybe seem that it is only Gordon who can be affected by this. The alternative explanation is that there is just something about Sailor Steve Costigan, who I, I assume this is Sailor Steve Costigan, not like his cousin, Unsailor Bill or something like that. Right. He's got sledgehammer fists. So it's got to be. Got to be. And so my sense, in fact, really my sense of this story is that this is kind of a, a kernel. This is a, a story that Howard was developing that he maybe intended to turn into a, a, a more uh, robust, more bona fide Sailor Steve. Steve Costigan story. And so it has to be the story about how Costigan himself is is the hero here. So I suspect that he is hearing the song and is maybe even experiencing some of these effects that Gordon is, but that they don't have the power over him that they do over Gordon and maybe all other people except for Conan. Yes, of course, Conan will never have the ability to listen to records as far as we know. So he's definitely safe uh, from this haunted disc. The last bit of business we have to take care of with this story is wondering about maybe the third act here, which is what do they do with the rest of their day? Do you think listening to this record has any lasting effect you know, there are some stories that you read and and when they end, you imagine the characters in the world living on after you close the book. And this story almost seems to either totally kill the world it creates or force you to imagine what happens next. So what do you think happens next in this story? What does the next act look like to you, Glenn? Well, that's a great observation because the real world of this story is the the vision of the sacrifices in the cave. And that's, that is over once the, the record is smashed. Like the real world of the story is not these two guys in the study. That's almost a frame narrative for the actual story of, of sacrificing virgins in, to Satan. I think that really kind of supports my reading of this story as really kind of a, a rough draft that Howard has written for a, a bigger story he was wanting to tell and just kind of teasing things out. Because there are a number of things that could be done here, even just taking this story as it stands to, to go into 
another act. I've already suggested that we could get the story of rounding up the, the, the rest of the cult, for example. And of course, lots of adventures and shenanigans can occur while you're doing that. Uh, your suggestion here, right, that there's something these guys are going to be carrying with them from having listened to this song is a real interesting one. What happens to Gordon when he has to go about his life? Maybe right right now, at this moment, he feels like he's survived this experience. But over the days, weeks, months, maybe even years to come, something is gnawing inside of him. Something, something mystical, magical, dark is taking root in him. And he finds himself wanting to murder. And he becomes a high priest of Satan as a result of having heard this black mass in the most beautiful voice that the world has ever known or something like that. You probably have some ideas as well. Yeah, you just took it, Glenn. That was that was my idea. <laughs> <laughs> no, I yeah, I really think that that you're absolutely right. There are a bunch of way the bunch of directions that this story could go in. If I were to think about the next act of the story, I would have to start, I think, all over from the beginning and and reframe the story and either have it be about the adventure leading up to the crumbling of this satanic cult, or this is really a first back first act, and we follow Stephen Gordon into the room and Costigan out of the room. And then maybe Costigan returns to clean up Stephen Gordon after a couple years away, sailing and boxing and fighting around the world, and uh, comes back and finds his friend has lost time and uh, started collecting his own neophytes and is on the verge of committing these evil acts and maybe has to stop them before they begin again. Yeah, and that Sailor Steve is a real hard-boiled detective, which would be fantastic. Well, I think we did a pretty good job of talking about why this story is so fun. And really, for me, the benefit of reading stories like this is an exercise in imagination and wondering what you would do. There's so many good ideas in this story. And it really does read to me, I think, as it does to you, Glenn, as a rough draft, as he's sketching out an idea for something bigger. And we know it was published posthumously, which to me could suggest that they found it among his things and edited it. We, um, just based on the manuscript history in the edition we're reading it from, all they did was change like a period to a comma or something like that. But we don't really know the history of this story other than there's some revival of Howard interest in the 1970s. It continues on today. And we have these really short stories that were never published or bought in his lifetime. And this is one of them. Right. And it's not even clear to me necessarily that this is a story he was sending out trying to be sold. I, I still kind of maintain that this to me feels like a draft of another story that he was working on and that he, he maybe didn't ever send out. Uh, though, if this is the quality of of a draft, I mean, Man, what a what a quality writer, because this was a great, fun story. Yeah, I certainly enjoyed it a lot. But I think we did all we can with it for today. So that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Brandon Buddha, And I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Head on over to the Clay Temple forums and let us know what you thought of Casanetto's last song. I would love to hear uh, our listeners' thoughts of this story in general, but also how it tickled their imagination. What kind of issues did they have with the story that they could resolve using their own kind of imaginative exercises? What are the character motivations? What are they doing? What are the relationships between them? To me, that is the real joy of this story. 
take up some of these writing prompts. Send us some stories. We love getting stories from listeners on these on these writing prompts. Next time, we're going to be back with another of my favorite stories. This is The Bowman by Arthur Mackin. And until then, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs> <laughs>